it's about moving people. So by creating spaces where we can get more efficient modes of transport, like cycling, you know, hopefully it will allow people to sort of travel a little bit more freely um, and reduce the traffic congestion, particularly if they're switching away from car onto cycling modes. That was Senior Transport Planner Rob Haywood, and you're listening to the Bailiwick Podcast with me, David Conway. Last week, it was proposed to change the road between Georgetown and Dom Road to include both a contraflow cycle lane and a withflow lane in the opposite direction, as well as closing the Howard Davis Park slip road. The proposal, which is now out for public consultation, comes as part of an effort to increase cycle links between the east of the island and town, and encourage islanders to switch to more sustainable modes of transport. Indeed, looking at the recent UK statistics, it seems there has been a national move towards more cycling over the past year, with a survey from Cycle Scheme finding that 53% of respondents who were cyclists had cycled more since the beginning of lockdown. Returning to more local lanes, Rob Hayward joins me in the studio to discuss the proposed Georgetown to Don Road development he's helped spearhead, and what the future holds for sustainable transport in the island. So first off, I just wanted to get a broad outline from you about why you think it's so important for the island to create more cycle-friendly areas. Um, well, if we create more cycle-friendly areas, it kind of furthers the government's ambitions around sustainable transport and what's reflected in the sustainable transport policy. So if we create more cycle-friendly areas, the idea being that more people will cycle and we'll generally see more sustainable transport sort of impetus in our, in our transport network, um, which is a good thing. And can you talk a bit about that broader picture, you know, um, give me a breakdown of what you have in mind. Obviously, the new Georgetown Don Road development is only a small part of a much wider jigsaw puzzle. If you could just explain what that puzzle is. Sure. I mean, how long have you got? It's quite a uh, quite a complex picture, I suppose. But we really sort of take it at the moment from the position of um, sort of looking at things through climate change and sustainability in general. So. What, what we're trying to do is obviously try and decarbonize our transport system as much as we can um, with this sort of drive around going carbon neutral. So shifting people onto cycling, walking in particular, um, that generally is a very carbon sort of neutral way of traveling around. So the more people we can get to do that, the better. It's obviously got a lot of other benefits as well with people being more active and uh, sort of healthier as well. And it's it's very good for people's sort of mental and physical well-being, that sort of walking and cycling thing. So um it's all uh it's all good stuff in terms of what you've done already obviously the most recent one that's probably fresh in people's minds is the contraflow lane that's um, from Halkett Place to Hill Street um, which I think was launched in June um can I just ask how that trial's gone so far and what's been the feedback from the public on it yeah so it's a trial for 12 months um there is a sort of set of follow-up measures sort of being identified or they've been identified i say um to really appraise the scheme it's going to like i said it's going to be in for 12 months so initially the first thing is to do is get the scheme in allow the travel patterns to settle down because normally when you put something in new fresh for the first time people are a little bit curious as to how it works they use it in different ways you'll find that there'll be some people that maybe sort of um didn't expect the cycle lane to be there, um, although we did consult quite heavily on it. So, I mean, it'll probably catch a few people off guard. So once the travel patterns are settled down, um, we'll begin the appraisal process really to sort of consult with members of the public and see how it's going. That'll include things like counts as well to look at the number of users and generally seek feedback from cycling groups as well as to as to how it works. Talking about 
how you choose these areas. Um, you know, obviously it's been different areas of town, sometimes and quite far apart. Um, you know, what, what, what is the motivation and the thought process behind the areas you do pick? So we're, we've actually got work in progress to identify, the government's calling it an active travel plan. I think that's the working title for it, but it's pretty close to what it'll be, um, which will actually set out this strategic vision in terms of what we're going to do with regards to identifying the routes around town. So it'll be something that's generally sort of master planned and consulted on and um, you know, it'll look at where all the routes could go around town in general. Um, historically, though, we've come from slightly a point of you know, using our engineering judgment and transport planning knowledge, you know, looking at data as to where people want to cycle, trying to work out where there's missing links. Um, you know, half the team or most of the team, I should say, are probably keen cyclists themselves. So as users, we kind of know on the network where, um, there are gaps or deficiencies, you know, we get people writing in, there's letters, ministers also um, sort of ask us to look at areas that they know are concerns from where they've had issues fed back from their constituents. So there's a whole raft and array and way in which we get this feedback to try and sort of identify future projects. But like I said, going forward, once we've got the active travel plan complete, we'll have that big picture and uh, hopefully everyone will be able to sort of see, see what's coming basically. Sure. And you, you spoke a bit about data there, you know, what, what, what has been the data? What's that told you overall so far about the networks in town and more broadly on the island? Yeah, so we've got a couple of um, cycle counters that are down principally on the cycle route on the south coast. So we've got one near the Lookout Cafe and there's one at Half Day Par. They count the cyclists 365 days of the year. So we've got a really good idea of how seasonal flows in sort of cycling can change. Um, you know, unsurprisingly, lots of people get on the bike in these nice, warm, mild, sunny months. Um, it's a nice, pleasant way to travel. Not so much when it's absolutely throwing it down in January. Um, so we, we can see how it changes. And it's actually quite interesting looking at the data because it does vary immensely. You just have to look at whether the day was raining or whether it was sunny. And it's quite a dramatic difference in the number of people that are sort of walking and cycling or cycling in particular, I should say. Um, but we've also got other sources of data we look at. So we've got Strava data. Um, we actually sort of have the data fed back to us from companies like that. So for, I guess, those of you that don't know what Strava is, I should probably elaborate that it's a, uh, it's an app that people use when riding their bike to record their journeys. So we get the information that comes back from Strava to, to let, let us know basically where people are cycling and where they want to cycle. So we try and match up that supply with the demand in terms of where they're, where they're traveling to and from. And where are those cycling hotspots so far? Um, it's mostly along the south coast. You'll probably be unsurprised to hear. Um, you know, we've got the decent cycle track running along St. Obins Bay. There's there's incredible numbers of cyclists going along there, like tens of thousands a month. Um, and, you know, through the half-day pass cycle counter. And then, crucially, what it allows you to kind of do is is overlay the, the information on a map. So you build up, like, heat lines in terms of, you know where the most cyclists are using so you can see like where there's hot spots and then you can kind of go back and review the area and just say look are we actually providing for cyclists in these areas you know are there barriers to you know you know, making it easier for cyclists to permeate through these areas and what can we do about it moving more specifically onto this georgetown to dom road development obviously it's going to make things easier for cyclists but in terms of traffic obviously you're turning this into a single lane road are there going to be risks that instead of reducing car use in town, it could actually simply clog up roads with traffic up Montmillet, up around town, you know, and make car use more 
prevalent. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a frequent concern whenever we're sort of looking at reallocating road space and sort of increasing facilities for cyclists. You know, we've got a fixed amount of um, space in Jersey's roads. So to actually sort of turn some of it over away from car use to cycling use is always going to have that tension. The idea being that if you if you start to reallocate road space towards cycling modes, um, you can actually get a lot more people down a particular stretch of tarmac at any given time. You know, a bike takes up physically a whole lot less space than than a car, an SUV, or even like you know a large van sort of thing. So some of the bigger forms of transport. So it's about moving people. So by creating spaces where we can get more efficient modes of transport like cycling, you know, hopefully it will allow people to sort of travel a little bit more freely um, and reduce the traffic congestion, particularly if they're switching away from car onto cycling modes. So I suppose the, the fear is people people don't switch, you know, and that it only uh, supplies the current cyclists. Um, you know, is, are there other ways that you've thought about trying to address that as well, trying to encourage people to do the switch? Yeah, so I mean, just transport in general is a big, big puzzle, I suppose. So um, cycling is just one form of it. There are other forms. So, you know, walking and travel by public transport. So Liberty Bus um, are part of the mix as well. So if um, if people can travel as well by bus um, or by walking, then that's also a more efficient way to sort of move more people around the network. So um, that's that's just one element to it, really. Another area of the development, which is going to be quite significant, the Howard Davis Park slip road is going to be shut. Um, can you explain the reasoning behind that? So the reason for that one is, is we've looked at the traffic data at the moment in terms of the vehicles that are making that right turn. And it's very, very small numbers relative to the traffic that's going through the junction. So we've built a junction model um, that will allow us to essentially you know, work out whether this will cause a problem for the traffic in general before we actually go ahead and do it. So we look at the numbers, look at the anticipated increases or sort of changes to overall delay and queuing, work out whether that's an acceptable number versus, you know, the advantage it gains for cyclists. And and these things are done on a balance, really. So um, if there's any any sort of change overall, then, you know, you've got to weigh it up against the, the improvements of the increase of like sort of amenity and journey time sort of reliability that you're introducing for cyclists and safety as well of course and can you talk about how that will benefit cyclists as well by taking out the right turn lane and creating a sort of space where people can walk and cycle there instead um, that actually allows a lot more scope to how we design up any future junction so it suddenly makes available sort of additional width that you could use for a cycle lane um, or you can make, you know, the pavement wider. So it's it's more of a sort of safe environment for pedestrians because that's one of the sort of things we get fed back to us. A lot of Jersey's pavements are very kind of titchy in terms of a, the overall width. So you often find yourself walking along the gutter next to sort of puddles where cars are splashing you because it's so narrow. So um, if we can create those those sort of wide and open areas where people feel safe, there's, there's space for people to move around, um, then it just adds to the overall sort of walking amenity experience kind of thing. And you're going to be more inclined to do it because it's it's more attractive sort of way of traveling, really. As well as um, cars, there's obviously quite heavy bus usage. There's bus stops along that road. How are they going to be factored into this new development? So the bus stops aren't moving. Um, the bus stops still, will still be there. Um, the final design is yet to be really sort of thrashed out because at the moment we're um, we're going through a public consultation phase to really get the feedback from people in terms of, you know, what they see as the concerns. So, you know, we talked to Liberty Bus as well. They've obviously expressed a wish to us to keep the bus stops there. They're well used, well loved. Um, so, you know, we're going to incorporate into the proposals as best we can. Um, 
you know, to make sure that the bus can still set down and pick up people safely. Um, so, you know, that could be, um, you know, weights in the traffic. It could be that you create a little cutout for the bus to pull into using some of the available space. Um, there's different ways of looking at it. And until we've sort of done that public consultation work, we won't really know what the best solution is. And in terms of the road being an artery in general between town and the east, for larger vehicles and emergency vehicles like ambulances, how will they be factored into the plans and how will they be given special provisions to ensure that their flow continues as normal? Yeah, so I mean, we'll consult with the ambulances and the and the emergency services in general as to as to their needs. Um, anecdotally, from when I've spoken to you know police officers, um, they put the blue lights on and everyone just parts like the Red Sea. Um, it's it's quite a quite a sort of powerful way for the police to actually sort of get through the traffic sort of thing. So, um, the if if enough people kind of switch modes onto cycling um, and we we encourage that cycling culture then overall we're hoping the traffic levels of congestion will be you know roughly the same um, it's one of those things as well that it balances itself out so if the traffic congestion levels reach an unacceptable level you see people changing how they travel um, you've probably done it yourself where you thought traffic's hell today I won't bother traveling or I'll travel later or maybe I'll catch the bus because it takes the same amount of time there's different responses that we get as individuals that sort of mean that overall we don't see generally um, situations where you know it's impossible to move from you know one part of the island to the other it might take quite a long time at times um, but overall it finds a level where people kind of travel and find it you know what they're willing to do and in terms of safety as well with this continued traffic on the streets uh, now intermingling with cyclists two lanes of cyclists how will safety measures be incorporated so any any design goes through what's called a road safety audit process um, that's and that occurs at various stages throughout the design so it, um, there's the early stages when it's being sort of designed on paper, two-dimensional design sort of thing. And then once the scheme's actually built, it goes for another road safety audit process. And that's where a qualified road safety auditor will go out actually on the site and identify issues. And then it will be up to the designers, i.e. the government, to respond. Um, I should just say that the road safety auditor is completely independent. So, um, you know, he, he will criticise or she will criticise our work, let us know where the safety issues are, things that we've missed. Um, and then we'll, it'll be up to us to sort of address those. Um, in terms of like safety for the cyclists, obviously what we're trying to do is create an environment that's as safe as possible for people to cycle. So that as well acts as a powerful means of encouraging them to sort of take to the mode because that's one of the sort of common sort of feedbacks that we get that people find cycling. Um, you know, at times it can be quite threatening because of the traffic around you sort of thing. So if we create safe spaces for cycling, then it, it just adds to the mix that, you know, it's a safe mode of travel. Yeah, because you've got the bollards there already. What are some of the provisions that you could see being put in place as well as the bollards? Um, this, well, you can use your imagination, I suppose. Um, I mean, look at cycle lanes from anywhere else, be it in the Netherlands, Copenhagen, London's got quite an extensive cycle network with the cycle superhighways they're putting in. Um, even down to some of the more modest cycleways that we've got, um, you know, here within Jersey, so the railway walk being a fine example, it's quite an urban area um, adjacent to the part there. You know, it's a, it's a tarmac road. It's not the countryside. So we'd probably try to make sure that anything we put in was complementary with the townscape and streetscape so that it sort of, you know, ultimately ended up being, you know, part of the, you know, a good standard public realm for St. Helier. 
And going back more broadly to looking at um, cycling in Jersey, do you have any data on how many cyclists are in the island and predictions about how many there are going to be in the future? Um, It's quite a tricky one because a lot of people that cycle also drive cars as well. So when you're talking about the numbers of cyclists, it's it's, it's quite a a hard one to pin that on. I would like to think um, that most people know how to ride a bike it's you know the old saying goes isn't it you never forget how to ride a bike so as long as you've been taught it once in your uh, in your life then hopefully it's something that stays with you um the government are doing some good things with the schools as well um particularly jersey sport i should give a shout out to them they're um they're sort of running up the sort of bikeability training that's being sort of pushed through the schools at the moment so i think in the schools that have got it um there's actually people going in to teach children how to ride bikes so obviously once that's done they're going to be you know we've got a new generation of cyclists there that will hopefully you know it will never leave them and and they will continue to use their bikes but uh i'd like to think the numbers are pretty high i couldn't tell you the exact number though do, do you have a data collection process or is that coming um so yeah we've got we've got counters like i said sort of measuring the ones that are out and about cycling on the roads you know we use strava data to supplement that information um sometimes we'll do spot counts as well we'll go out with you know you might have seen people out in the high visibility sort of coats the orange coats um just taking clipboard surveys if we want to do a spot count sort of thing um so there's different ways we can kind of record the record the numbers of cyclists using a particular area so we try and match it up with you know the, the method we use to count them with with what we're trying to do in terms of projects so um don road for example will probably end up um doing more manual type collections because it's a very discrete specific area whereas um the ones along st Owen's bay for example that i referred to earlier they're the um they're the ones that sort of record 365 days of the year so we've got an idea of what's going on at any given time so it's 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 sort of matching it up with the need really in terms of people who say have their foot stuck to the pedal, who probably won't ever convert to cycling, are there also provisions and ideas in place for trying to convert people to EVs as well as just cycling? Uh, so when you say electric vehicles, do you mean cars or bikes? Because there's cars, both cars types. specifically. In terms of, is there going to be an equal push for electric vehicles to? Um, come onto Jersey's roads as well as just cycling. Yeah, I think we're going to see that identified in the carbon neutral roadmap, which is due to be published, I think, towards the end of this year. Um, so that will identify, you know, measures the government's likely to take around encouraging the uptake of people to electric vehicles. Um, just thinking about it from an industry knowledge perspective at the moment, we know that across Europe in particular, where Jersey gets all of its cars from, um, pretty much every major European country has signaled an intention to get rid of the internal combustion engine by a particular date. So in the UK at the moment, that's 2030. Um, and then you won't be able to buy hybrids, I think, after 2035. So because these countries that supply us with their vehicles have essentially instilled that policy, we're going to see a trickle down effect in Jersey. So I'd, I'd say after those dates, you're not going to be able to buy brand new a a fossil fuel powered vehicle um or it's very likely i should say you can never say never with um with these developments but uh yeah so it's, so it's less a matter of policy regards to electric vehicles and more a case of inevitability it's a mixture of the two yeah so there's a, there's a certainly a degree of inevitability because jersey doesn't make its own cars um that said people still might want to import classic cars for example that would be um you know powered by internal combustion engines and and we wouldn't want to necessarily stop that um but uh 
you know, by and large, the generally the, the the new vehicle fleet that comes into Jersey would become carbon neutral. Um, there's 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 things that we have to get right that we're going to be consulting on in the future, such as you know the exact date that that might be relevant or applicable, um, because that there's I think the minister's been on record, the infrastructure minister, to say he's got concerns about Jersey becoming this dumping ground. Um, that if we don't sort of match our legislation around electric vehicles to the UK's then all of the vehicles they've got left brand new that are um you know fossil fuel powered they might try and you know offload onto a onto a neighboring jurisdiction so and that would obviously work against some of the intentions the government's got around going carbon neutral so there's there's some sort of things we need to look at really to get that right to make sure that it's it's suitable for Jersey and of course we'll sort of consult with everyone near at a time as to as to how that's going to land. I don't think the UK themselves know at the moment just exactly um, how they're going to do it. So there's a green paper out. And keeping on that subject of the future, obviously the Georgetown and Don Road project is a trial. Looking ahead to the end of this trial, what will be the barometer for success? How will you be measuring the success as to whether to continue having this um, infrastructure in place? So, I mean, there's there's lots of things we can use as barometers. Um, I wouldn't say it's one sort of single decisive factor. Um, obviously, the main one's going to be, you know, we visibly can see a number of people walking and cycling. There'll be feedback that's sort of put back to us from, from members of the public. And also just how the traffic overall responds to that um, change. Now, if we introduce it and, you know, we find that, you know, suddenly parts of Ruda Fort, the neighbouring road, um, go into absolute meltdown um, and it's, you know, an unacceptable level, then, you know, we might look at, you know, ways that we can sort of modify the scheme to sort of, you know, increase traffic capacity or um, do certain things to try and, you know, offset that impact really. So it's never, you know, no one road scheme is ever, I find, generally quite finished. There's always things you can do to tweak and improve it. And... You spoke before about the overall development of the island as being something of a puzzle, I suppose, you know, putting these pieces together. Where, where next? You know, where are the key areas you're going to be targeting? We've got here, but, you know, where, what other roads, what other hotspots in particular are you going to be looking to be converting to be more cycle friendly? Yeah, so, I mean, it's it's been, um, it's it's kind of we'll try and do as much as possible is, is the short answer i suppose um you've probably i don't know if anyone's seen it but in the bridging island plan the government's identified sort of the uh the intention to further develop the eastern cycle network so that's one of the things that's going through the sort of public consultation process at the moment so don road forms one key part of that and in the future we're going to obviously try and develop as many additional arms to that eastern cycle network as possible the west's got quite a good cycle network in terms of like i said the one that runs along st Obins bay and the railway walk um, so what we're going to do is try and sort of cross the gaps where we know there's sort of, you know, unmet sort of supply in the cycle network. So, you know, Georgetown in particular springs to mind. That's quite a difficult place to cycle through. Um, so there might be some solutions we can look at there, but say this is all like future work and I'm very much thinking of this off the top of my head. But, um, you know, we'll, we'll look at the data and uh, hopefully try and, you know, work out where the next piece is. Because the thing with... Um, you know transport projects in general is that lots of people have got really quite powerful feelings as to what the government can do to sort out transport and usually it revolves around their own personal experience so how do i get to work how do i get my kids to school that sort of thing um our sort of challenge is really to do the thing that is the most benefit to the most people 
whilst staying within the budget that we've got available to us. So, you know, typically we'll try and do the things, you know, really starting in St. Helier because we know that's where the most people move around and then sort of gravitate outwards really because if you can get the most people cycling and walking and using public transport in the middle of town, then that will then hopefully have a beneficial effect on traffic the further out you go. So So it's going to be sort of central outwards approach yeah like i said because if you do things um you know say say we're investing government money in in transforming projects like don road um we want to make sure that we're getting the best value from it so you know if we're doing things in the middle of town there's going to be more people using it so there's there's basically more value to more people so that's the general premise sort of thing and also if you think about it from a um from a user's perspective it can be incredibly frustrating if you've got a really amazing piece of infrastructure outside of town um like we've got with the st peter's valley cycle path although that's maybe not the best example um but you find you've got a really great trip along that piece of infrastructure and then you get to you get to town like the destinations where you're mostly trying to get to and you find it just runs out so um if we can bridge those gaps and make the sort of network you know particularly in st helia really really legible really obvious then you know it'll just enhance the overall offer for cycling. Thank you to Rob Hayward for sharing those insights and thank you for listening to the Bailiwick podcast. You can find the podcast on all the usual pod places and don't forget to like and share. The music at the beginning and end of this podcast is I Shift My Weight by Luno. Tune in next week for more.